Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Album Addicts, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we have two returning guest co-pilots with us. First up is James Seamus Dillard. Seamus, welcome back, man. Hey, thanks. Glad to be back. Oh, yeah. And also, we have Rockin' Mike Cordes. Rockin' Mike, good to have you back. Always great to be back. All right. So excited. The four horsemen are here. (laughs) Mike, they've been trying to keep us apart. I know, I know. (laughs) But, uh, hey, you can't control fate. (laughs) (laughs) So, on this episode, we're going to have a roundtable discussion on Warrant's 1989 debut album, Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich. Seamus, how'd you get into Warrant and this particular album? It was a nice spring day, March 1st, 1989. Me and my buddy Mike, my drummer, was going to the Newport Music Hall, formerly known as the Agora Ballroom here in town. All of us went to see Bob and Eric and Gary and Dennis with a band that nobody knew of, but with a singer everyone knew, Paul Stanley. But before Paul came out, there was this hotshot new band that came out, and they played a tight rocking set. They had a lead singer with a boatload of charisma, and I think maybe a case of the crabs. (laughs) (laughs) He was Ohio's own Janie Lane, and the band was Warrant. And that night I became a fan. They sounded great. They looked great. They had swagger. And for a 22-year-old musician and rocker, they were my age. They were just like us up there, just a couple years older. Janie was 25 then. He was larger than life. He was cool and humble at the same time. The men wanted to be him. The women wanted to be with him. I just, it was everything you wanted to uh, see in a rock band. And I tell you what, they were so good, they made Paul Stanley work his ass off that night. Wow. Nice. All right. Mike, how about you? Uh, So Down Boys video was my first exposure to them. But then I saw them open for Motley on the Feel Good Tour, December of 89 in Hartford, Connecticut. And I had had the cassette before that, but... I I fell in love with them, and I went out and bought it. I stayed away from them for a while in the 90s when kind of there was the backlash, but it's been a lot of fun delving back into this record. I'm excited. Yeah. Ray, how about you? Well, I'm pretty sure I heard them on, like, uh, a radio station out of Boston, 107.3 WAAF, the only station that really rocks on the Liz Wilde show because, I mean, that show is pretty much how I got all my new L.A. metal coming down the pike because we didn't have MTV, at least in Worthington. But, you know, honestly, at the, the, that time, it was kind of a change for me because I was going over from, like, ACDC and Van Halen and more into speed and thrash metal. And to be perfectly honest with you, I was a different person back then, to quote Woody Harrelson in Natural Born <laughs> Killers when he's talking about the key lime pie. Um, and I wrote these guys off as L.A. poser cock rock, um, and I just, they didn't grab me. So it actually took me a while to come around to the warrant side of things, and my final review will be at the end. Oh, yeah. I first became aware of Warrant when the video for Down Boys was being played ad nauseum on MTV at the time. At first, I just thought, oh, look, another glam metal band. I thought it was okay, but they didn't really grab me either like some of the other glam bands did. I mean, what, are these guys as cool as Motley Crue? Fuck no. So I didn't pay them much mind until I saw them live opening for Motley on the Dr. Feelgood Tour. I saw them in Portland, Maine. Now, I'm a pretty big dude, 
and when the floor seating was general admission, I was pretty good at slamming my way up to the front barricade. So Warren comes on, and I was really impressed with their energy and how much heavier they sounded in person, kind of like what you were saying, Seamus. They rocked hard. They kept the crowd fired up. Plus, I had two direct interactions with Janie Lane, and that sealed the deal for me. They won me over. I went out and bought the CD the next day, and from then on, I dug this band. So here are some basic facts about this record. And I use Wikipedia because I'm loose with the facts. <laughs> Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich is the debut studio album by American rock band Warrant, released on January 31st, 1989 on Columbia Records. It was produced by Bo Hill and was recorded from April to November 1988 at Enterprise Recording Studios, Burbank, California. It reached number 10 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified two times platinum by the RIAA. Next, here's the band's lineup card. We've got Janie Lane on lead vocals and acoustic guitar, Joey Allen on guitar, Eric Turner on guitar, Jerry Dixon on bass, Stephen Sweet on drums. And there are additional musicians, which we will mention as we see fit, and we'll probably be mentioning them a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, all tracks on the album were written by Janie Lane. All right, let's get into a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. Starting us off is 32 Pennies. Seamus, what do you think of this? I want to go back to something you said before we dig too deep into this. Had I not seen them live, I would have probably had a very similar idea of them that Ray did. But, you know, we saw them live, and, and uh, Sweet and Janie were Ohio boys, so we wanted them to, to do well until we actually started seeing the videos. And then, man, they came out in that white leather, and it ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk 32 Pennies, man. As a singer-songwriter, I was a fan of Janie just because he could turn a phrase. I wonder how many times... Uh, people go through their lyrics and rewrite them and rewrite them. I know for me, sometimes when I'm writing, it just comes right out. And other times I'll sit on something and rework it for years. But 32 pennies, there's a couple great lines in it. First of all, why 32? Why not 22 or 18 or 45? 32 had to be the perfect amount in that ragu jar. And I make, <laughs> I bet it makes a really cool sound. It's like a good pocket full of change. So the line is 32 pennies in a ragu jar. It's all I've got to my name. But I love her and she loves me. And to the pennies, it's all the same. How can you not dig that? It's not even got a chorus on it. It's, 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 it's not even good enough to be in the title, but it's just a throwaway line. The chorus itself is okay, but it's this weird palm muting walk down thing the verse rocks it's got this really nice uh, groove with an e minor to a d verse with a lot of single note fills great hook great swagger and a good lead off track i will mention before we go too far because i know that the slammer uh thing will come up when we said we were going to do this i really started trying to research 
who did what leads and who was responsible for what leads. And it took me down a rabbit hole. I listened to everything Mike Slammer did. I listened to all the solo stuff. I tried to get a cop his sound. I went and, and watched YouTube videos, and I'll tell you this. Joey Allen plays the intro lead on the Lafayette 91 video. Eric Turner does the main lead, and Joey does the outro lead. And it was the same for the 1991 Palm Beach, Florida video. Now, whether they were they, they played this originally or they just copped it after uh, Slammer put it down, I don't know. But they, they did a good job of nailing this lead live. Very good. How about you, Mike? Okay, so when I was gave it a first listen, I've had a lot of time to listen to this record and kind of revisit it, and I haven't listened to this in years. So my initial take, I put a pop metal rocker about being broke. I found it to be a weird way to start the album. I have a couple sequencing issues with the record. I put that, I originally I thought this song was filler. And then as the week went on, I had that line, 32 pennies in a ragu jar. And I'm singing it over and over and over again. And it completely changed my initial kind of revisit of the song. Warren's greatest hits 32 pennies is actually on there and it's written as 32 pennies in a ragu jar is the title on the sleeve <laughs> of the greatest hits yeah. uh you you get in, introduced to some of Janie lane's vocal mannerisms he rolls his r's at one point uh where he says ragu he's like ragu and he yeah. ooh, ooh, baby yeah. like that whole <laughs> yeah. thing um the melody is catchy as hell the only thing I want to know, spend all my time and all my money on a knob for my brass bed. I don't know what the significance of that is. A bed knob. But I really want to find out. And like, you know, it was a weird, like, handcuff accident and some girl. You've never had a girlfriend. Yeah, well, I was saying, like, the girlfriend ripped the knob off. So, like, now he's got to replace the knob on the brass bed. I don't know. Let me rephrase that. You've never tied a girlfriend to your bed. You are correct, sir. Uh, and I thought, originally, I thought the pre-chorus was strange. It was double-tracked and echoey. But it really grew on me, and it really changed my position on the song. And now, a couple weeks in, I'm all in on 32 pennies. All right. Ray. Well, sorry. I, I feel like these guys covered a lot of territories. I'm sure you will, too. But uh, it's got that cool kind of zeppelin -y intro riff and a really slinky solo. And around the .06 mark, I swear to God, Jerry Dixon gets like a bass pop in there. If like, you listen close, it's kind of cool. I mean, and if you think about it, this is kind of the beginning of the return to kind of like that funk metal kind of scene that kind of extreme kind of jumped back on and like remember um, white trash in them Although, oh yeah white trash kind of came like a little bit later yep but um the electric boys was it the electric, electric boys, boys. Yes. Yes. yes same kind of like this is kind of at the forefront riding the crest of that wave into like a return to that which was all right by me um you get some cool doubled octave vocals in the pre-chorus which i'm assuming as much as that must be becca bramlett yes who's like parents the female are, yeah mm -hmm. yes delaney and bonnie which like I mean, Eric Clapton played with Harrison played. So, I mean, these guys had some, like, you know, they knew, I mean, they Bo Hill knew some people together yes. on there. Yes, well, yeah. It's pretty cool. The slow, solo's got some kind of plaintive notes in the middle of it. It's like, I assumed as much because I, I went into this thinking it was all Mike Slammer for whatever reason, and I, I didn't know, but obviously Seamus has done his research. Nobody else <laughs> but I just assumed this was Janie Lane because based on my own Wikipedia research, it didn't sound like these guys were... I didn't think they were that much into their, their solo stuff. But apparently, I was wrong, and I'm happy that I was wrong about that. Janie gets his Paul Rogers on in a couple parts, especially like when the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't do the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the, I'm in love with you. He does a thing. It reminds me a lot of Paul Rogers. And I really think this guy, like, was a killer lead singer. And uh, that's the great tragedy about it. Is that, you know, he only got his moment in the spotlight for a little bit, and then it was just kind of dashed. 
And I like how the pace kind of picks up in the end and kind of goes from a Zeppelin groove to kind of like a four on the floor rocker at like the two minute, 30 second mark. And you get a nice outro solo. It's kind of, what I thought was kind of cool and unique about this, the song just kind of goes out like these single note bends and that's it. It's kind of like a weird kind of way to end it. And, but it's unique and it's, uh, it's a keeper. So nothing wrong with 32 pennies in my book or right. my ragu jar. Oh, oh. So, Warrant became known at the beginning of their career as a glam metal band, but this opening cut isn't typical of a glam tune. I mean, sure, it's got glossy production, courtesy of Bo Hill, who did a lot of glam metal records, but it doesn't have the upbeat, party-hardy vibe most Sunset Strip groups advocated. This has got a mid-tempo groove and stuttering guitars that rock hard but don't accelerate or push forward until the end of the track. Well, it does have the ooh-ooh hook, and the chorus, while not shouted or exploding, is still kind of catchy. So back in the 80s, there was controversy over the guitar playing. Seamus very much touched on this. There were rumors that Joey Allen and Eric Turner didn't play at all on the album and that they were ghost players. From what I could gather from the internet, mind you, you know that is important. They did play the rhythm parts, but Bo Hill wasn't happy with the solo, so he brought a ringer in, Mike Slamer, a session musician who also played in the band Streets, to play the solos, and the band pretty much confirmed it, so nice playing Mike Slamer. Janie Lane, I gotta tell you, he's not the greatest singer. He's got a very limited range that he smartly stays within most of the time, with occasional leaps higher that does make his voice strain a bit, but I like the timbre of his voice, and he fit this band well. His personal charisma comes through in the vocals. The lyrics are about a guy who's dirt poor, but as long as he has his baby's love, everything's going to be all right. I love the line, as we all have been saying, 32 pennies in a ragu jar. That's all I've got to my name. That's one broke-ass bastard. <laughs> Towards the end, the tempo goes faster, and the song races to the finish with Gimme Love, Gimme Love shouts. I really dig this track, though I do think it's an odd choice for the opener, too. I'm with you on that, Mike. The next track is Down Boys. Down, boys. <laughs> Seamus, your thoughts? Hey, just to touch on what you and Mike said about the 32 Pennies not being a great vocal or a lyrical uh, start to this album, I think it's a perfect start to this album because these guys were dirt poor, willing to do anything to make it dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich, including not playing on their own album. <laughs> so you're telling me this is a concept record, Seamus? <laughs> down boys. I don't even know uh, what a down boy is, but I heard it might be referring to oral sex on a woman. I do remember that I was in a couple bands that played this song when I was uh, back in the day. It was a fun song to play. I like the line, certain things you do really make me mad, I must confess. The way the street like silhouettes your thighs inside your dress. That's just pure poetry, man. <laughs> it's not good poetry, but it's pure poetry. <laughs> it's a harder song than you might think to play. If I remember right, it's uh, 
I think the main verse is like an A to a D to a B to an E back to an A, and then there's a chorus riff. But it's a great song. It's a, it's, it's a good mid-tempo song. Um, it was the first song to have, a, uh, the first single to have a video on it. I don't know if you guys remember the official video, but Warren's getting out a convertible, and they walk by this Kramer-looking guy from Seinfeld. <laughs> they go into this empty warehouse, and they begin to play their choreographed stage moves and then as they play there's hobos who show up and all of a sudden they get stage gear and a bar and then kramer's the doorman <laughs> and then before the song's over it disappears again so uh interesting video i did get a chance to see their uh 1987 show so this is pre the album and Eric did a uh, lead on it, and I gotta admit, A, it was live, and B, it was pretty bad. <laughs> 91, I seen in, in, in Lafayette, Eric still played the lead, but it's pretty much the lead you hear on the album. Tokyo in 91, Eric plays, but in the West Palm Beach, Florida, Joey plays the lead, and they both play the same lead that's on the album. And then I did notice later in that video, Eric plays lead on some of the other songs, but it looks like he has a soft cast on his arm. The one thing I can tell you from doing all the research at looking at those videos is that this band really got tight as a live band. Just doing these songs over and over and over again, it really shows by the time they're in the 92, 93. And I, I think that that was the strength that was overlooked. They were a great live band and to go back to your statement ray about them being kind of punky and everything they did um they, they did a tour with like i don't know trickster and firehouse or some other asshole band <laughs> and, uh, and all the guys got to come out and they did uh they did beastie boys as an encore with all the other bands and that was pretty cool nice all right rock and mike one obviously one of the hits this was my introduction to the band same thing choreographed moves the video on mtv that i like the line about you know confess and then this dress but i always found the first way he punctuated it a bit annoying not in the rest of the song just confess you know like I, I was like if i once i get through that i'm cool with the song though you don't think he should have had some jazz hands <laughs> it it probably would have played off pretty well. Uh, you have the, and each one is followed by some keys after that, which is Bow Hill adding that Bow Hill uh, touch to his production. Oh yeah. Uh, the song catchy verses, sing along choruses, the drums, the way they punctuate that vocal delivery, especially leading into the current uh, chorus. Again, nothing jumps out at me musically, but I find myself singing the song nonetheless. That line, you've got a lot of nerve calling me cheap, even though it's true. I, it's a great line. It a great it, line. It's really a great line, and it's kind of sad because I remember an interview with Janie Lane, and he said the lyrics were never included inside the liner notes of this album because he didn't think they were good enough. Wow. Huh. And th that was the difference. When Cherry Pie, all the lyrics are in that album, and he purposely, other than Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinkin' Rich, he purposely didn't include the lyrics because he didn't like them. And this is what we're talking about 30 years later. Is yeah. We're talking about what those lines and what we like. And I don't know if it's a bigger kind of a window into kind of the demons that bugged him going on, if he didn't feel like he was good enough. But there's some cool lines. I like it. The more I listen to this album, I really... the I, the more I realized the success of these songs was based on Janie's writing and the whole album is riding solely on Janie's back. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love the song. Yeah, he's carrying it for sure. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Ray? Okay, so yeah, Down Boys is probably the first song I heard on uh, from Warren on the radio. And my favorite part of the song is when Greg Hawk's keyboard comes in, the, the, <laughs> the vocal singer goes, Wee! 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 
Oh wait, no, that's Bye Bye Love because by the Cars because there's a lot structurally of the song that completely rips off the Cars Bye Bye Love. Right down the da 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 da. It's like oh my no, holy shit! I never no. made that connection. I, I completely it missed me, it. it. Well, it took me years to figure. Out. I was like, what about this song? It puts a wild hair across my fucking ass. Until about a year ago, I was like listening to it. I was like, no, no, maybe. And then just this morning, I played both of them back to back, and I was like, "Wow, they totally stole this from the Cars." <laughs> so, well, okay, steal maybe, maybe too harsh a word on Nicked. it. Nicked, yeah, inspired borrowing. <laughs> Nicked, yeah, whatever. But I mean, doesn't I mean it doesn't totally take away from this. There's elements of them that are definitely there, but like that little um. That little like kind of quiet guitar part between the vocal parts and the verse section—that's totally where that that Greg Hogg keyboard part yes. belongs. And I thought maybe maybe they figured. Am I the only person who like noticed this at the? I, I didn't know. notice I it never at all. did. All right. Now I can't. Now I'm never not going to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I it, the song is okay. I don't really hate it, but it's just kind of hard for me to get around that. Um, the keys in the background are kind of like right out of the Bon Jovi songbook, a la David Bryan. That's what it kind of reminds me of a little bit. But you know, it, it was a, this album's a product of its time. And um, something I looked up to, I was researching Bo Hill. He had a band called Spider back, back in like 1980 that got signed to Chrysalis Records. And the album was produced by Bruce Fairbairn and the engineer. Know who it was? Bob Rock. Bob Rock. Holy yeah. shit. So That's an unholy trinity right there. there. <laughs> These three dillweeds were responsible for yep. <laughs> so much. That is the 80s right yeah, there. That's Roxy Blue. 80s glam metal right there. Steelheart. Seamus, you mentioned Firehouse. And, like, and <laughs> yeah. they just they cranked this stuff out. Like McDonald's cranked out fucking cheeseburgers. I just think, you know, that that definitely played into it too. So I, I can't fault Warrant for that. Yeah. And then actually, if you don't mind, while we're talking about Bo Hill, he also produced Kicks Midnight Dynamite and two of the solos on that album are Mike Slammer. Oh, no yeah. shit. He does so, so he does solos on the kick stuff. He also produced Alice Cooper's Constrictor, Europe's Prisoners in Paradise, the two Fiona albums, <laughs> the uh, of course, Winger, like, yeah. you know, and all the rap, obviously. Yeah, but right. yeah. And didn't Fiona and Kip Winger do a song together? Yeah, they did one too, right? Uh, yeah. You're Sexing Me or yes. something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Oh, shoot. Bo Hill aside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A, Ray. You have ruined this song for me. <laughs> Sorry. Holy shit. Ray ruins yeah, everything. Thanks, oh, man. Now I'm going to, well, I'm going to say what I originally wrote, although now I'm completely thinking differently. This is the first song I warrant most of us heard. I used to dig the intro passage. <laughs> it was distinctive due to Stephen Sweet's drums and it lets you know what's coming. It leads to a tough chugging riff with the guitars and bass playing together, again staying in a heavy mid-tempo pocket. I used to like the pre-chorus woes and the chorus is melodic and catchy as hepatitis with some nice gang vocals. The ghost of Mike Slammer plays a good melodic solo, and I'm probably going to be saying that a lot on this podcast. To me, the lyrics seem to be about wanting to get some oral action, especially with that line, the way the streetlights silhouettes your thighs inside your dress. We're all kind of fawning over that line. It's a great line. It took me a long time to figure out what he was saying, though. I couldn't understand what he was saying <laughs> <Nope>. at first. <laughs> Janie wants to be a down boy, or is that a go-down boy? I don't know, but watch out for that tongue cancer, Janie. Ask Bruce Dickinson about the perils of eating pussy. <laughs> You gotta love this tune, or maybe not. <laughs> and the video was popular on MTV, showing off the boys' synchronized stage moves. This was the first single from the album that reached number 27 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Hey, uh, are you guys down, boys? 
Always, it's some other guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a broken alibi. The following track is Big Talk. Seamus, you going to ruin this one for us? Well, I'm still thinking about Rick going to Ohio State pre-cars and maybe Janie living in Akron came down here and saw one of those bands play and maybe ripped it off way early. I don't know. I'm lost. Johnny went out last night, got into a barroom fight, embarrassed a jealous man in front of his cheating wife. Mm-mm-mm. All right, guys. Who is this Johnny guy? Why is he always in the thick of it? Is it Johnny Be Good? Is it the same Johnny that Bonnie Tyler wrote about in Hide Your Heart? I mean, I got questions, damn it. <laughs> then it works, Johnny. Be good, Johnny. <laughs> nah. Did you cheat with her, Johnny? <laughs> nah. <laughs> it's a nice G to an E to an F kind of riff. I don't know. It's an okay song. It, it's, it's swagger. It fits with the other stuff we've heard on this. It's the third song on the album. Uh, it. it, it it's the third single. It's the third video. The video is kind of weird. It's the guy from the album, the character that's the dirty, rotten, stinking. I, I guess that's the record exec. Fugazi. Um, and then there's, <laughs> a, there's a ninja, but the, you know, there's not ninjas because there's a budget, so there's only one ninja. <laughs> and the band's been thrown in jail. But Janie's strapped to a chair, and he gets electrocuted. And then when he gets electrocuted, the band is suddenly on stage. But then it's a sound stage, and then it's concert. And then Janie goes from an Axl Rose to a Brett Michaels headband. I don't even know what the hell's going on, man, but the song's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and Mike. <laughs> I watched the same video today, and I think Janie Lane is the guy dressed as the Indian guru, that all in white. Oh, with the, is he? I think that's I think that's Janie Lane in FR two. I was watching oh, I gotta it today. Go check it out again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I put another happy pop rocker. Uh, I read a review about this that claimed the majority of this album is in major keys. And since Ray and uh, Seamus, you guys are musicians, maybe you can tell me if that's true. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, there's a couple modal changes out here and there, but by and large, these are, you know, one, four, five rockers. All right, well, it made me think of a Dio interview. He said when people were asking about perceptions of metal, he replied, we write in minor keys and minor keys scare people. Hmm. This doesn't scare me. <laughs> it's a bar band with big hooks, a sing-along uh, chorus, a serviceable solo. As bad as that sounds, it's catchy as hell. I sing along with Janie. Could have given it a grimier sound given the lyrics. You were talking about Johnny. It made me think of uh, Give Me Two Steps by Leonard Skinner. Yeah. That, the, oh, yeah. Lyrically, that's, Absolutely. What, yeah. that's what I was thinking yeah. of. And Bo Hill don't do grimy sound. No, he does. And I even said that, but I think that's a trademark of Bo Hill. Yeah. It's just a, a it, they're just a party band out to give you a good time. And the, the video is funny as hell. All right. Ray. Well, wow, the bass drum sound at the beginning of this is wicked 80s. I don't know if that's an electronic kit or if that's just him tweaking the I don't the think sound, it is. But it's, it's definitely... A un- it's I just think it's processed that way. Yeah, it must be, yeah. but um, I like I kind of like it's the swing to it. And the guitar intro is kind of cool. It's almost like a little Eric Johnson-y thing going on there. But really, Thin Lizzy is all over this song. From the guitar minis, 
which has like that in the loose swing and swagger of the song. And Seamus, you mentioned the swagger that goes along to it too. Even the subject matter is like something Phil would have written, which is kind of like got Johnny and it's got barroom fights. Uh, that said, said though, I like this. Uh, it's one of my favorites on the album. Yeah, I'm digging the kind of um, the Slammer solo with the muted passages in it. And there's a great outro solo at 3.09. I, I could be wrong, and because I'm getting older in, in these days, I'm getting deafer as well. <laughs> it sounds like, okay, at one point they say, Beyonce! <laughs> but my guess is not. Um, because, you know, Destiny's Child was years down yeah, the road. Well, was, she, was she a toddler at the Probably, time? yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's not Beyonce, but now that I hear it, that's all I can think of when I hear it. This song is actually, yeah, this is a fucking great song. I love the shit out of it. <laughs> Stephen Sweet's big shuffle beat sets the tone and is the dominant focus of this track. Everything else kind of follows along with it. I love how the guitars and bass use start and stop riffs to accentuate the beat and allow Janie's vocals to kind of glide over and between them. And a good glam metal song always has a strong pop-inflected chorus, often with gang vocals, and this song certainly has that. I also like the, we're backing it up, finish to the chorus section, and then it gets repeated in the bridge. Mike the Phantom Slamer plays a good solo that combines melodic and shred elements. The lyrics are about Johnny, a guy who's not afraid of a fight and will back up his tough guy talk with his fists. Janie tries to project some bravado into the vocals that makes me think if I ever ran to him in a dark alley, I'd wet my pants with laughter. (laughs) For me, this is one of the best tracks on the album, and it was the third single that reached number 93 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The next track is Sometimes She Cries. Seamus, what do you think? Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Slammer. (laughs) (laughs) Mike is all over the song. It's a great little ditty. It's got a great bridge. Lyrically, it's cool. Mercy don't think she's pretty no more. Staring at the stars through her back screen door. She tries and tries to make it all work out. But no matter what she does, she's standing in the middle of doubt. I think each of us have a little mercy in us. It's a great song. It goes E A to B minor to A. As Ray said, I mean, these things are are pretty simple uh, structurally. To pick up on what you said about the drums, if you turn this album up and just lock in on the drums and the bass, you will see that they are the foundation of these songs beyond and above what Jamie does or Janie does to them. Live uh, warrant in Detroit back in uh, I don't know 2010 or whatever that was. They they didn't even do the intro. They didn't do any of the lead fill stuff. And in '91, uh, Eric plays the intro and nails it, but they cut the song off halfway through because they kind of did like a melody or a medley of their slower songs. Um, I did find audio from a New Haven concert in '89, and the lead was pretty solid. Uh, I'm going to assume that was probably Eric, since the lead kind of mimics the intro. There was a video for this one. The official video starts off in black and white with a female 
which we learn is Mercy. She's walking out in front of a house. It must be cold because she's got a big scarf on. And then we go to collar footage of Janie singing. There's more and more story scenes of Mercy. And then there's a guy like Brian Adams, and he's leaving her, and she's got a baby, and he's a dick. And then <laughs> back. They got their cool leather on, and they're playing in a barn for some reason. And then there's a guy that looks like Richard Marks that sleeps with her, but then he leaves. And the only one she can really count on is Janie. But then wait, just when we think it's all over, the Brian Adams guy comes back, and everything is wonderful. Brian Adams versus Richard Marks death match. Let's do it. I've never seen any of these videos, but I got it. Now, the big takeaway from this video is that Jerry Dixon staples willy worms to his face as eyebrows. <laughs> Mike. I can't follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. For, uh, first ballad on the album, I really like the, the lead and the, the itch. He's just kind of, you know, he's doing the melody of the song. And that's Janie's strength, for good or bad. He writes a great, a great melody. More of Bo Hill's keys. The solo just plays off the melody, but I like it. It's also the longest song on the album, uh, but it doesn't seem like it. It's really the first one where, as not a musician, I'm definitely not, but I'm actually listening to what's underneath. And I have to, I'm going to have to do what you suggested, Seamus, and turn it up because I ended it with, by the way, does Jerry Dixon actually know how to play bass? Because I don't, like, it's like, it's like they took Bobby Dahl and then they turned his bass down like Newstead on Aunt Justice for All. Because when I do hear it, it's dump. <laughs> dump. There's nothing elaborate about it, but he does lock in on the harder songs with the drums and, and he plays, you know, uh, adequate bass. He's he's no Nikki Six. Or Bobby Doll. Or Bobby Doll. Yeah. No, it's, I'll, I'm definitely going to have to do that because I was listening to it and it was I, I couldn't hear it. So I'll, I'm definitely going to try that out. Ray, uh, my first set of notes, I just I, the only thing I come up with is Chick Song. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I gotta put a little bit more effort doing it than just that. <laughs> Mike Slammer does a great lead intro. And basically, if you take this on face value, it sounds like it's pretty much like your basic one, four, five chord progression, which is like bending rock from Chuck Berry through even now. But it's kind of weird because I'm pretty sure. Seamus, did you say there's a B minor in there? Yeah, I think there is. Yeah, that's really weird because it's not often that you guys you hear a guy put a minor chord on the five chord. I mean, it almost gives it like a, makes that sounds like a little bit more sophisticated. And I, I don't know if they did that because of you know some sort of like music theory thing that thought they would sound good or they're just high. I'm sure that's exactly what they yeah, did. It was yeah. a music theory. It thing. It was definitely a music theory for thing, sure. Yeah. No, I, I think Janie Janie tend to play a lot of B minors. He. he, he um, I think it's because it's like the first bar chord you learn, or if you play just the high B chord and you don't bar it, you know, you play it like a D kind of chord, just the, the top of the B. It's it's a pretty easy acoustic chord to hit. Damn straight. I will not allow anyone to bust on Janie Lane's musical sophistication on this podcast. <laughs> well, that's it. I actually kind of like that as for, as for a chord choice. Um yeah, then you got a mix of clean arpeggios and then power chords in the pre-chorus. And then there's this one part at two, the 2 minute 33 second mark where there's like this weird kind of little bridge section. And then they just kind of just go for a second and then they just never come back to it. Which I kind of respect that choice not to beat you over the head with it over again. But it's <laughs> kind of a nice little bit of nugget in the middle of the song. 
Um, Slammer pulls out some standard solo tricks, whammy bars, and unison bends at all. Um, at 326, we get a key change on the way out. And then at 352, we get another key change. We get a guitar solo, and then they just boost up the riff by chugging it 16th. And I was like, dun, 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 which is kind of cool. I mean, this is kind of paint by numbers song development, but it's, it's as far as like ballady kind of things, I don't hate this. So, yeah, okay. Sometimes she cries. Sometimes <laughs> I cry. <laughs> And to answer your earlier question, Seamus, yeah, I think I did get a little mercy on me back in the day. Pretty sure I did. <laughs> Pretty sure oh I did. <laughs> so any glam metal outfit worth its salt has to provide a power ballad on its album, and this song is the first of two on this record. It's got a nice intro solo that clues you in that we're about to get serious. And then the guitars stay clean on the verses as Janie tells the story of Mercy, who's sad and lonely. She could be a little older, maybe losing her looks, and none of the relationships she's been in have worked out for her. And she used to have a million of them, so she was probably hot shit at one point. The pre-chorus builds the tension up, and then we get the big chorus. It's effective and easy to sing to, looking to tug on the heartstrings, which I'm sure it did to late 80s teen girls. Gotta say I like the solo on this one, too. Mike Casper Slamer, I'll give you your props. And I do get a chuckle when Janie reaches for the high notes at the end. Yeah, yeah! <laughs> it develops into more like screaming and he's straining, and I don't think it's his strong suit. As far as power ballads go, this is good. I've heard better, I've heard worse. This was the fourth and last single that reached number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The following track is So Damn Pretty Should Be Against the Law. Seamus, let's have it. Well, I was looking at you from across the room, hoping that you would see me too. After half an hour of nothing to do, my feet were getting cold inside my shoes. If that ain't a cool way to tell somebody you're getting cold feet, I don't know what is. <laughs> we have all been that awkward teenage boy that just wants to walk up to the girl, take her by the arm, do your thing, but we are awkward and Janie, as cool as he was, never got rid of that little bit of awkwardness. And I think that's why he was, you know, enduring to people. We can all see ourselves in him. This is a good song. It's got a great groove. The video on 91 shows uh, both guitars trading licks back and forth. They opened uh, the whole concert with this in uh, Tokyo, and it was the one where the, the gimmick was that uh, they would each get up on the shoulders kind of uh, like – Angus did with Bond. One would get on the bass player, one would get on Janie, and they were they would play. So that's what they did with the song. They opened with it, and yeah, it's it's a slammer lead from the album, but it's a good a good solid song. I think it's placed well on the album. We we go back from you know either Janie or Janie in full swagger mode like this one and some of the other ones, or then we go to that serious. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the ballad stuff. And I think it works well because like you said, he stays within his voice. 
he's not a Halford. He's not a, you know, it's, this is not Iron Maiden. This is exactly what uh, I think Mike said earlier. This is a bar band and we can all imagine just drinking a Budweiser and listening to this stuff on a Friday night. All right. Rock a mic. I said hookers. <laughs> just, I love this song. I really do. Like, yeah. there's, you know, I spent so many years listening to this stuff, and then there was those ninety years where you're trying to like put everything behind you and go, well, I'm more mature now, <laughs> and now I'm 45, and I'm like. It's fucking hookers, man. Like, <laughs> it's awesome. It's uh, it's just glam metal in the pocket, upbeat, pretty standard. Mike uh, Mike Slammer, he finds a way to trade solos with himself, which I thought that was. Um, it's how gr- good he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm, you know, I just imagine like two guitars on stands, and he's running back and forth. Um, it's a it's a great party anthem and a great way to end side one. I liked it. Yeah, Ray. I love the intro. It's kind of it reminds me a little bit of Rat, and I love Rat. So that, if you, I can get, stand behind anything that that's got that kind of drive to it. And I like how, like between the point thirteen and the point fifteen mark, there's like a switch in the speakers. Like if you have headphones on, it's like they're like because mm-hmm. like that kind of race car effect. Um, the song definitely chugs along. We got some great woes in here, and I got to remind people that we are in the era of Joey Lawrence, so woes are totally <laughs> apropos. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, <laughs> these, these, these guys have it in, in spades and I'm going to do something that's never been done before here I don't think in the history of man I'm going to make a connection between Janie Lane and MC Ren of NWA because maybe I'm just hearing it wrong but is he, he wants to take her to the bathroom until I ever yes. heard it don't matter just don't bite it by NWA <laughs> I never thought of that like <laughs> oh well you know we can go up you know behind the house we can go you know up into the woods Take her to the bathroom, man. Yeah. And there, there, there you go. Janie Lane and MC Wren. Perfect. <laughs> we can take her to the adventure trail behind the middle school. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I love the shit out of the lead work on this, especially like the muted section at the two minute, 35 second mark. And I don't think I have to say how we are for feel about hookers and whores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Songs about hookers and whores speaks for itself. Anybody who's listened to the show knows. So take it away, Aaron. <laughs> This was the song the band opened with when I first saw them, and I feel like this should have been the opening track on the album. And even though I wasn't familiar with it at the time, this one hooked me right away. It's the fastest and hardest rocking song on the record with good chugging riffs that race along and bring the energy. Somebody give Mike Slamer a golden kunkel for the solo on this bad boy. It shreds like a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Janie is horny as hell on this one, and as he will see a million girls, grab a pretty one, take her in the bathroom, and get down to the raw. These lyrics leave no room for interpretation. I fucking love the gang vocal. Whoa. In the chorus, it's one hell of a hook and let me recite some of these phenomenally romantic vocals i said hookers and whores and a teenage slut on the bathroom floor i'm in love 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 oh yeah you had me at hookers janie i love this track (laughs) whoa The next track is the title track, D-R-F-S-R. What's that mean? I don't know. Uh. Uh. 
Seamus, what's that mean? Dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking wretch. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, every time I hear that, I just think of Vince McMahon. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a great song for the time. You know, when, when we when we said we were going to do this album, I had to go back and look at it. Like, well, when, when did I go see Paul Stanley? And to be honest with you, that this came out in 89 blew me away. This is like 84, 85, isn't it? Because this is like the stamp. If you had to like show somebody an album for, for the 80s, this would be the album to me. It's like, yeah, this is the excess. There was hookers and whores and cocaine and bathrooms. And, you know, they wanted bank accounts and CDs and early term rollovers. And, you know, give me a fucking quarter. I'm going to touch you. <laughs> it's a great song. Um, it, it, again, go back to listen to those drums, man. Those drums just carry it, man. They're powerful. It's a E D E D C D verse. How do you like that, Ray? Love How that, boring yeah. is that, right? <laughs> and and just just to give you something, a little something, something, we're gonna add a GA as a tagline, and then maybe bring that back in the bridge. Well, that's getting out there but, now. That's crazy <laughs> talk. Yeah, Whoa. This is a great song. I love the song. I love. I'm, uh, this is the kind of song you turn up on the on the, a long trip somewhere where you just want to just get your yayas out. This whole CD, man, you just put this in, turn it up, turn the knob, break it off, throw it out the door, and just drive 80 miles an hour until the cops pull you over. Nice, but I'm not breaking my knob, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what do you think? I mean, that opening, it's iconic or infamous, depending on how you <laughs> kind of look at it. The one, And it would be repeated later on Cherry Pie. As we said, 80s materialism. However, more Janieisms in it. The laugh at the beginning, right after he says the dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich. And then when it goes into, I'm going to have more money than you have ever seen. Again, I wish it was the sound was a little grimier because it gives it almost a menacing feeling. And I think the sound could have helped that out. Yeah. Um, but again, the melody and the vocal carry the song and... That's my favorite part. Give me a fucking quarter. I'll touch you. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I love that. And it, there's a lot of Warrant songs where he throws little things in like that at the end. And, yeah. you know, which I like because it shows he's not taking himself too seriously. Yeah. Ray? Uh, I agree with you 100% about the taking of people taking themselves way too seriously, especially like later on in the decade that followed this decade. And this one, Janie, I love this song, by the way. This is like one of my, one of my favorites on this album. Um, Janie gets his David Lee Roth on after the first high-pitched Sam Kinison-style laugh. Look out, Mark Torian. <laughs> um, and is that like a phase effect? Uh, like it's, I can't tell what the hell kind of effect it is, but it's like a phase or flange or something. Or, I think. Yes, I know what you're saying. But it's cool. It's, yeah. it's, it's really cool. And maybe he'll even pierce his nose. It's kind of funny because, you know, like now I think, you know, it's not uncommon to see like, you know, women walk Who doesn't their, pierce their nose? Or, or their nipple or yeah, their clitter yeah. and give themselves a Prince Albert. And you'll see it because yeah. that's the way we are now. But back then it was kind of like, you know, yeah. who was doing it outside of Lenny Kravitz? Even tattoos at this point were like, whoa. Yeah, man, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool. And this song kind of proves at least they didn't really take themselves too seriously. And it had a sense of humor, which I think a lot of... Other bands, like like I said in the grunge era, could have kind of taken note of and, yeah. and incorporated Oh, this more. band big time had a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is awesome. Yeah. you got to have that. There's this part where there's like a little guitar mini, like stutter steps leading into the second verse, which I thought, oh, they could have explored this kind of thing a little bit more. I'm not sure if that was Slamer or if that was a Turner-Allen kind of a thing, but it's cool. And the solo work is just fucking mint, especially like the muted trim picking part. So this song is, is, is the goods, as they say. Yeah. 
Well, just like Seamus did, the full words to the title are shouted out so you know what the letters stand for. Then the main riff comes in with a little mid-tempo half gallop that I really dig. Dun, 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 dun. Then Janie does this yelp that's totally hilarious. Then we get into another start and stop riff in the verses as Janie sings about being a corporate fat cat and owning long Italian cars, exotic animal footwear, pretty rocks on his fingers, pretty bells on his toes, caviar for his mouth, and he just might even pierce his nose like the rich folks do. The bridge slows the music down as Janie wants to light his cigarettes with $100 bills. And then the tempo increases for the guitar solo, which is a pretty neat trick. Musical sophistication. <laughs> Mike Slamer comes through again. This non-band member is a consistent highlight on this record. We come to the final chorus and a fade-out with more soloing and Janie screaming about more shit that he wants to own, a commentary on materialism that everyone can relate to on some level. And that chorus? Nice! This song is dumb fun. Say it with me, listeners. Dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking, rich. The following track is In the Sticks. Seamus, what do you think about this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I imagine. I love the, uh, I said, hey now, baby, ain't you the girl next door? Reet Petite, you must not eat. I bet you know the score. Did you guys know that Reet Petite was from Jackie Wilson? No. no. I, I, I did not. Wow. I, I found that out. It's it actually a name of a Jackie Wilson song. So Lonely good on Jackie Wilson? for calling that back in. I always thought he said something else. I I thought he said sweet petite, you must not eat. But I think that's what I thought petite. too. Me too. Yeah. Wow. Um, so a, a little callback from a Jackie Wilson song he probably grew up with in uh, Ohio here. In the Sticks. I can just imagine this young John Oswald Blonde hair, blue eyes, walking in the suburbs of Akron, Ohio. Those suburbs with the, the sun going down and the blue that will remind you of her blue eyes on another Warrant song we'll talk about in a minute. But there the future Janie was not quite the cocky frontman walking hand in hand with some high school sweethearts with the cricket softly serenading them and the moon acting as their own chaperone. Come on, man, this is in the sticks. If you've ever walked down a dirt road and held a girl's hand at the time, you know what this song is about. I don't know if it's a great song. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Mike? Uh, someone who has grown, who grew up in the sticks and currently lives in the sticks this song is almost as bad as living in the sticks. <laughs> uh, the, uh, it's a simple little riff, catchy verse. You're not going to confuse them with Dream Theater on this song. <laughs> uh, but I'm singing along, so that's yeah. all. all right. Right. Boy, I think I might be the only one. I actually kind of like this. <laughs> There's always one in every crowd. Yeah, yeah, I'm that guy. Yeah, right. What is wrong with you tonight? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got kind of... Your solid standard ACDC style riff with a great slammer solo. 
And I like the riff that kind of separates the vocal part and the verse section. It's the part where he's saying, "In this, yeah, the gang vocals with in the sticks is where I live." Like that pre-chorus kind of thing. Yeah, that probably my standout part. The chorus riff is kind of funky and cool. <laughs> Actually, it's probably one of my favorite songs on the album. <laughs> but. And, <laughs> Ow, wow. Party of one. <laughs> this suddenly became a devil's advocate show. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think and, we and, need an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> I was sniffing a lot of glue when I reviewed this. No. Um, no, like Mike, I, I grew up like maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 minutes away from you did. So, yeah, like, yeah I, I, I kind of get where, you know, growing up in the sticks and how much it does kind of suck. Uh, Kid Rock can blow it out his ass. This song is a hundred times better than that anal cheese slop he created a few years ago with sampling Skinner and Warren Zevon. Oh man, I can't. Don't even. Yeah, yeah. No, I even, agree with you on that. I will yeah. smash this fucking. Don't even say that song's name. Yeah, <laughs> I will destroy this room. So that if you want, if if you want like a wistful look back at you know kind of a shitty rustic childhood, I'll take that over that slice of crap. Any day. Now, what does Bobby know anyway? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mr. Richie, his dad was a car dealership owner. You are not from the trailer. It's up front. Yeah, and, and it's got a nice bird song outro. <laughs> 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 I like birds. <laughs> wow. Well, speaking as someone else who grew up in the sticks, um, this one kind of blows. <laughs> This is a generic filler stuff of the sort that pads out many a glam metal album. The riffs are bland, the energy sags a bit, and the best I can say is Jerry Dixon's bass line in the chorus is one of the more interesting ones he plays. It's not strictly following the riff or playing root note runs. The lyrics are something you'd hear in a country song. Janie's having a romance with a girl next door, hanging out at the Willow Pond where the cattails grow real high. She ain't like those city girls, and that's good because even though he ain't no country hick, him and a city, they don't mix. It's goofy as fuck subject matter for a glam metal band, and not even Mike Slammer can save this one. Me and this song, we just don't mix. This is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The next track is Heaven. Seamus, you like this one? Oh, boy. <laughs> I do like it because playing it in the 90s was good for what it did. And it usually meant you got at least somebody's telephone number out of it, um, if not more. Maybe it was a trip to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, it's a typical, what is it? This is a G to B minor to C to D. Got a picture of your house And you're standing by the door It's black and white and faded And it's looking pretty worn Well done, sir. It's the song that made them. It's the song that ruined them. 
it was the song that neutered this band in some ways. When I saw them live and the, 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 the strength that they had as a live band, they, they could have done a lot of different things. But it was the mandatory 80s rock ballad. And, you know, it is what it is. Um, everybody had to have one. I think that uh, it was mandatory that you played a rock ballad in G um, in the 80s. Uh, if not, they, they cut your hair. Um, <laughs> I, I will tell you this. It's got to be pretty cool to be Janie Lane and stand on stage and have 20,000 people singing your song to you every night. Mm, yes. Yeah. Good point. Official video, it shows rock concerts and some soundstage footage. Starts off with uh, the band uh, and some photos and then Janie singing dreamily into the camera and we're just lost into his blue eyes. The bands traded their leathers and handed in their balls for these white outfits. They look more like the band Angel than any leather-covered lover that they sing about on this album. There's some chick who does photography. I don't know. You know, it, it probably got a hell of a lot of airplay at that four o'clock MTV call in or whatever it was we did back then and oh, yeah, see who was going to be the video of the day shit. Um, I did get to see an 87 uh, a Gazari show and Joey Allen played the lead. And there's a couple of elements that he played that ended up on the CD, but the lead was average at best. They also, at that point, had not figured out the song yet, and there's a weird second background vocal that they kind of like do a counter-harmony, um, and thank God they dropped that before they recorded it. And then in 91, Lafayette and in Tokyo, Joey played the lead, and it was the slammer lead from the album. Um, also, did I hear a key change on the album? Yes. Imagine yeah. that. <laughs> it goes up, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. They do not do that live or my ears are old and tired because I did not hear that live. Musical sophistication. <laughs> Mike. So I have to say I like it too. Time has gotten me away from that video because I think that video is really what kind of, you know, you, you see the white leather suits, you see the choreographed twirls, you go through the whole thing. There, and, and it could be just me, but it seems like there's some actual sincerity in the song, which goes a long way. I listened to the demo of this that Plain Jane did, his previous band, and it's, I like the delivery a little bit better on the first half. Uh, this version, though, however, if you have one of the first 250,000 copies of this album, you actually have a different version of Heaven than the later copies, because the, the label actually took it back, were kind of surprised at the reaction they were getting to it, which I don't understand why they were surprised. Mm. That doesn't make any sense to me. But they took it back and they did some reworking of the song, and that's the version that we hear now and ends up in all those 80s comps. One of the things, though, that bugged me about that video, the way it ends, because he looks at the camera, he gives a smile, and he gives that wink. He gives a wink and then he turns away, and it's annoying as shit because to me, that wink just goes, Bam, I got a Ferrari. Yeah. And he walks away. <laughs> yeah. It's like, the video really hurt this song for me. And now that I can put some time back behind it and I can laugh at the video, I can separate the video from the song. And I do enjoy the song. Yeah. That wink actually takes away the sincerity that exactly. you think you hear in the vocals. Yep. Like, you exactly. know I'm putting you on, right? Absolutely. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. this is, you know, this is going to make me dirty, rotten, filthy, <laughs> thinking rich. That's what it's <laughs> 
Right. Once again, I think I'm maybe the only person here. I fucking hate this song. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. It's so by the numbers, and it's based on the same template that John Bon Jovi and others set, and I hate that fucker too. Um, <laughs> the only time I've ever liked this is when Mr. Bungle put it into a medley. They did this, Rhythm Nation, and uh, Free Fallen <laughs> by Tom Petty. <laughs> and Mike Patton is just patenting it up. I mean, he's, he's like not even really trying to get the words right. He's just getting like the intonations right. Uh, and as a 45-year-old man, I still fucking hate this song. Um, this part of that first wave of cookie-cutter L.A. cock rock like Firehouse, Trickster, Roxy, Blue, and Winger that I just... Uh, it, it was just like... and I, It's probably an, an emotional stunted part on on my my part but it's like you know at the same part of me at 16 says if the chicks like it i probably don't like it it still kind of kicks in i just fucking hate this i will say though Janie lane does actually a pretty decent vocal performance on that i can't i think he kind of had brad dill best aspirations mm-hmm. couldn't quite get there but somebody but he didn't have those yeah. vocals no no he didn't have the vocals <laughs> but like some of his delivery you could tell he's trying yeah. to, to sound like Delp, but I don't know, man. Well, you know, he was taking vocal lessons before they were signed. Um, so, I mean, he, he did take himself, you know, he was trying to get better. And I, I think you're right. He always did want to be able to hit some of those higher notes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I, I think he definitely had the aspirations. But I think, you know, he just didn't have a lot. I, I, so, I don't think this is a big shock to anybody. This is Ray's unimpressed musical pick. Bruh. Yeah. All right. I guess I should just leave it. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything <laughs> fucking all right. So I'll just shut up now. Well, it's the second of the power ballads. And in my opinion, it's a better track than Sometimes She Cries. I kind of like this. It's super cheesy with the acoustic guitar intro cliche, long sustained chords and keyboards played by Bo Hill beefing up the emotional atmosphere. I can't help but think that this band paid attention to how well Poison's Every Rose Has Its Thorn did and used that blueprint. Janie stays in his uh, lane vocally on this. (laughs) He doesn't strain himself, and he actually gives a pretty good performance. We've been saying this. Lyrically, he loves his girl. He sees things around him that remind him of her. And even though her friends don't approve of him, and times can get hard, and he's not perfect, he believes that as long as she's with him, they can make a good life and be happy. Of course, it's got a big heart-tugging chorus and wailing solo, and it does what power ballads are supposed to do. My old crush loved this song. I would have sung this to you, Hortense. You know who you are. Bands like Warrant wanted to pull the chicks, and what better way to do it than to put out stuff like this? It works well for what it is. And I forgot this, but it was a monster hit. The second single that reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. This hit number two. Because it is that. number two. Yeah, what, what kept it off? Do you remember? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> what, what was that great song? Wasn't it a great song that kept it off from number one? Probably. It was probably Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> It was Millie Vanilli. Oh, oh I read that crap. Oh, I forgot. Shit. Yes. Girl, you know it's true, right? Was that the single? I think it was the single, right? Blame it on the rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a tragedy for me to see. <laughs> Janie was, man. He couldn't he couldn't do karaoke or whatever the hell. <laughs> oh shit. He should put his hair in cornrows, man. <laughs> the penultimate track is Riding High. Well, I ain't no dream you'll see things you never seen before. 
Jameis, you riding high? All right, riding high. Good song overall. Got a solid ACDC intro, a good sister song, a dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich. When I heard this song, um, you know, I thought they were going to be more priest-like in, in the development of their uh, career. It was songs like this and Dirty Rotten and, and Cold Sweat and 32 Pennies that drew me in the first time I, I saw them live. I was like, they they could be sleazier, as, as uh, I think Mike kept asking for a, a little bit darker, dirtier, grittier sound. Live, there was that. Um, I don't know when you saw them, uh, Aaron, but they didn't have keyboards when I saw them. This was like a month after this uh, album was released. Yeah, they didn't when I saw them either. Yeah, so they still had a lot of that grit, and I, I thought it worked well. And I, what was it, like their third or fourth album, they kind of did that a little bit, Bitter Pill maybe or something? The third, third, Doggy Dog. Oh, Doggy Dog, that's right, that's right. Uh, there's a demo of this, and there's a different intro with a slightly different ACDC riff um, and a different lead to it. I'm assuming that was the original lead that Bo said no to. But it still has some of the same elements. So I really think that a lot of these songs, Slammer might have taken some of the ideas and spirit of what uh, the guitarists were wanting to do or trying to do, and then he just was able to do them in a way did that, it right <laughs> yeah he did it right he did it, you know to me they would have been a much more like um i don't know great white sounding lead runs or something if these guys would have done them they would have just been more uh blues runs or you know the the, the average leads but but bo had just come off of working with rat and those guys and warren and and he he knew that they needed a a, a hot guitar player you know the world was revolving around this uh randy j van halen style guitar playing that was on every album at the time so it, it worked and it definitely helped the songs but yeah writing highs it, it's exactly where it needs to be at the end of the album um, you you kind of got a little bit of uh, fatigue at this point in the album, I think. Rock and Mike, I like what Seamus said. Fatigue. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. You know, it hits. It's eighties cock rock with a. For me, I found the the riff a little weak. That they cover more with some of Mike Slammer's lead work. Uh, it's another catchy chorus with backing vocals. Total filler. Uh, the only thing that I re- that I like in this song is the opening lines because I was looking the lyrics up and I've been singing it wrong for years. Um, apparently it's not just a leather-coated lover with a tattoo on my cock. (laughs) (laughs) I have to give J.D. Lane props because he found a way to turn the word heart. That is what it's listed on the inside of it. He somehow rhymed heart with rock. And the whole time, I've been, for 30 years now, I've been singing tattoo on my cock. I was wrong. And somehow that made the song. Dude, I got a tattoo for the song. (laughs) And the fact that that's not what he says made the song worse in my opinion. That's all I have. Right. Well, once again, we've got kind of an ACDC style riff, and this is just basically 70s style, uh, 70s style rock extravaganza. Got some nice soloing by uh, by Mr. Slammer at the 151 mark, and it's definitely, uh, this song is a great part one to the part two that follows, I guess. <laughs> That's what I got. Okay. 
I like the call and response intro between the guitars, and I dig the main riff with the bass adding some high notes that also appear as it transitions into the verses. More start and stop riffing. Man, this band does us a fuck ton on this record. And I dig the I'm living just to live it up pre-chorus. The chorus is a partial call and response between Janie and the gang vocals, and it works. And the soloing at the beginning of the track, as well as the main solo section, is spot on. Mike Slamer, you nailed it, man. If Joey and Eric didn't buy you a couple of hookers for your work on this album, you got the shaft, my friend. (laughs) The lyrics are generic as fuck. Simple living life to the fullest. Look what a badass I am kind of schlock. But I don't care because they're delivered well and I can roll with them. This is not a stellar song. But hey, for an album deep cut, I've heard much worse. It does the job. And that brings us to the final track, Cold Sweat. Seamus, my man, let's have it. Cold Sweat. The 87 video of this shows them playing this song pretty much as recorded. It looks like Eric Turner did the lead between verses, Joey Allen did the first half, and then Eric did the last bit, and then Joey did the outro. So either they really nailed the song, or they actually played the leads on the record, because 87 is before they actually recorded this, right? So... I, I got to think maybe they, they had one good one in them and they waited till the last uh, song on the record to show it. It's a decent song. It's a decent track. Uh, again, it's kind of like riding high. I, I, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I love well-placed pick slides. This song doesn't have one. <laughs> so, like, uh, which... I do. I, I don't know what it is about a pick slide I, I like, but it this, sounds cool. It yeah. just sounds cool. Does this doesn't do it. But he sang about alligator shoes, which I, I should have Googled it before, but I was going to Google how many bands sang about alligator shoes or, you know, <laughs> and there's a lot of Motley-isms in this. The pick slide, alligator shoes, Motley's got rats in my snakeskin boots. They've got uh, that line. Yeah, he yeah. rhymes action with satisfaction. Oh, Yeah. That phasey kind of guitar reminded me of a Motley song. I think it's Take Me to the Top off uh, off Too Fast for Love. And so there's a lot of Motley-isms in this. And as Ray can attest, I know my Motley. Okay. Um, <laughs> so um, it's it's okay. It, it, I know why it's at the end of the album. And I think we know what Janie felt of it, too. Because hell of a way to end the album. You know, it's like that. Ah, and all of a sudden... Boop, boop, be-doo. <laughs> <laughs> he says it at the end of the song, and I'm like, all right, I know what he thinks. So, yeah, it's, it ends the album. Right. Wow, holy missteps, Batman. It sounds like the last song. I mean, I would have, I don't know, I probably would have placed this somewhere on the first side and then, like, come back to this in the end. I do like this song. Actually, I kind of like it better than Riding High. Um, the, guys, the tambourine has a nice touch on the chorus, I thought. It kind of shakes it up a little bit. I guess that's a horrible pun. Please forgive me for that one. Uh, you got some nice gang vocals. You got some cool du- octave doubled vocals on I'm No Liar. And I think the drums overall sounded better on this track. 
until like we get to the uh, end of it. Then it just gets all like weird and processed again. But like the overall drum drum song for this track in particular, I dig. The final sustained sweat is kind of killer, and that's probably one of his better kind of growly kind of things. And uh, yeah, I think if they had just uh, moved this to another part of the song, it would have been or another part of the album. It would have been fine. This is this is also one of my favorites off this album. Okay, uh, we kind of end. On a meh note, this doesn't do a whole lot for me. Nothing in the riffs really grabs me, and there's not even a decent hook to hang my meat on, you know what I mean? (laughs) Nothing about this track necessarily sucks, but I find this track mostly forgettable. Mike Slamer, save me! Ah, fuck, I guess you can't win them all. The lyrics are about sex, big surprise, and how Janie is so cool and so fuckable, no woman could resist him. I mean, come on, ladies, he's got alligator shoes and he's been making news. Making love to him is like pouring gasoline on a fire, yet this motherfucker sweats ice cold, you dig me? Again, it's okay, but as an album closer, it goes out with a whimper more than a bang, despite the words to the contrary. Now that the track by track is finished, we'll reveal our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is as bad as a Joey Allen guitar solo. (laughs) Seamus, what are your final thoughts on Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking, Rich? Uh, Here's what I think. I think Bo overplayed his hand. As much as I love what Mike Slammer did on this and the next CD, just amazing guitar work. Um, they should have just invited him into the band at that point or something. But um, I think sometimes when you listen to what he does on this with some of the filler stuff, it's almost like guitar masturbation. And I get where they were trying to go for, like I said, there was a lot of guitar heroes and gunslingers at the time. But if you really listen to the core of this album, it comes down to what you guys said earlier. Janie Lane was a badass songwriter. You could take these basic rhythms and these basic lyrics, and you could make a half a dozen country songs or folk songs or pop songs or whatever. And I, I just think that the strength of these songs are the hooks and what they when they played to their strengths, they really did a good job. And then Mike was, was icing on the, the cake, and, and he did great for most of it, but sometimes I think it was a little overkill. Um, and, and don't forget, like you guys said, both keyboard parts and production on this, uh, you know, makes this something that we're talking about because what he did for rat and what he's done for, for other bands is amazing. And I really was in love with his production style at the time because he could just drive down sunset Boulevard, pick a band at random and make them into stars because he was that good. And, and they weren't. I think if you look at later albums and you see what they did uh, with uh, the revolving door of vocalists and other people, the the songs the and the production and the lack of Mike Slammer shows and some of their uh, later material, this song is a solid 3.5 out of all albums. It's probably a 4.75 as far as warrant goes. Okay. Rock and Mike. All right. So I'm giving it 3. Two five. Uh, I really enjoyed delving into this record way more than I thought I was going to. I'm like, okay, Warren, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is. It's all Janie Lane, and I really have a newfound respect for his melody writing. His his lyrics he are there's he can really turn a phrase on some of those parts, and it's really cool. There was a review I read on SputnikMusic.com, and I have to give him credit because it's a great line. So they they do a, a a review, and then they do a review summary, 
And the review summary said, the album doesn't really warrant your attention, <laughs> but you will be entertained if you choose to listen to it. All right. And it's true. It, it will. The, uh, the Slammer stuff, I was a little disappointed. I heard an interview with Jerry Dixon from 2012. He said, ah, Mike Slammer's just kind of a guitar tech. And then I look up Mike Slammer, and the guy's discography goes back to 1976. He's got 23 releases under his belt that's credited, not to mention things like this, the kick stuff we talked about. He's currently in a band with Andrew Freeman, who's in Last in Line, oh, nice. um, and which is kind of cool. For those who know, Andrew Freeman's kind of a Western mascot. That's a great CD, too, by the way. Yeah, it's Devil's Hand, I think it, it, they're called. Yeah, he's still stuff. He's still turning stuff out. So... You know, he really helped this album, but even without Mike Slamer, the, the Janie Lane contribution, that melody and those catchy choruses are all him, and I, I give him all the credit in the world. Ray? Well, if you had asked me this question, say, like 30 years ago, I'd be like, fuck these guys. This is shit. This is absolute garbage. And I, looking back, I can say that I was a huge hypocrite that back then because I also loved Rat and I loved Def Leppard. And like, so I did like the hard rock from that era as much as like the speed metal and thrash stuff. But uh, I definitely would have been like, yeah, not so much. But now coming back, you know what? I'm going to give these guys, I'll give them a 3.5. It's fun. It's confectionery. It gives you a bit of a sugar rush. And then it leaves your body and you forget about it. But I mean... I don't think, I don't really even blame the band. I, I think, like, you know, somebody at whatever the record label was saw this and, like, okay, this is going to be our next Motley Crue or this is going to be our next whatever. And they saw Janie Lane and they're like, all right, we're going to take this guy and we're just going to, like, fashion and mold this into something that's, you know, going to soak 16 year old girls' panties. And, um, yep. So it I did. I, yeah, it did. It, did. It, it, it worked, obviously. But at the same time, who knows? Maybe they could have had more potential. I don't really know them beyond this and uh, some of the stuff off the Cherry Pie. Uh, that said, I love the shit out of fucking Uncle Tom's Cabin, especially the part that Janie's brother plays, the guitar yes, show. Yes, that intro is yeah, sweet. Yeah, it's mint as shit. Um, but the rest of it, I don't really know so, so much from. So yeah, I'll stick with my, my three and a half. When you hear the term hair metal or glam metal, a handful of bands leap immediately to mind, and Warrant is definitely one of those bands. It was formed in 1984 by Eric Turner with a completely different lineup consisting of vocalist Adam Shore, drummer Max Asher, guitarist Josh Lewis, and bassist Chris Vincent, who was quickly replaced by Jerry Dixon. This version of Warrant opened for Hurricane, Ted Nugent, Striper, and Black and Blue. In September 1986, Shore and Asher quit to form Hot Wheels. And then later that month, one night, Eric Turner saw a band in a club called Plain Jane and was impressed enough with vocalist Janie Lane to invite him and drummer Stephen Sweet to join Warrant. Joey Allen came aboard to replace Lewis in 1987, and the new, improved Warrant became well-known on the Los Angeles club circuit. In September 87, the band recorded a demo that got major label interest, and in January 1988, Warrant signed with Columbia Records. The label arranged for them to work with hot producer Bo Hill, who had worked with Alice Cooper, Kix, Winger, and Rat, among others, and they set about recording their debut album. During the recording process, Janie Lane walked in on his best friend in bed with his girlfriend, and that led to a nervous breakdown that delayed the album's release for several months. When DRSFR was released, it had cover art featuring Fugazi, a fat, amoral cartoon business psychopath, and Warren immediately fit right into the L.A. Sunset Strip glam metal scene popular at the time. They toured with Poison, Motley Crue, Queensryche, Cinderella, and Kingdom Come, and their videos got heavy rotation on MTV. 
When their power ballot heaven exploded, everyone was taken by surprise, including the record company, and that single propelled the album to multi-platinum sales. The band would see many highs and lows and lineup changes over the intervening years, and in fact, Warrant still exists today, with all of the classic lineup in the band, save for Janie Lane, who died on August 11th, 2011, of acute alcohol poisoning. For me, overall, I really dig this record. It has many outstanding tracks and is a solid representation of what the glam metal scene had to offer at the time. I am an unapologetic glam metal fan, and in general, I really like the earlier Warrant material. I give Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich a three and a half. And I'll say this about the band. If you hate glam metal or hair metal or the 80 Sunset Strip scene, you won't like this record. But if you can get on board with loud guitars mixed with big hooky choruses, you should give these guys a listen. Hell, Cherry Pie comes next. How can you go wrong with that? <laughs> and from Album Addicts, Janie Lane, rest in peace. Now we got to thank James Seamus Dillard for returning to the podcast and glamming it up with us. Seamus, always a pleasure, man. Thanks, guys. I love it. All right. And rocking Mike Cordes, the co-pilot's chair is yours whenever you want to sit in it, sir. Uh, thank you. I love doing this so much. All right. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Give us a shout. We'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Bye. Bye, Russell Kunkel.
<laughs> Are we ready for heaven? <laughs> or take us to heaven. Yeah, man. All right, cold sweat. No, ride Great. high. Uh, what? Ride high. I'm sorry, I got backwards. What's ride really high. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's so interchangeable. It doesn't matter. <laughs>